0: right? That was a little harsh. I mean, if you've ever seen the movie Billy Madison, you know that what he said is truly idiotic. But still, it doesn't merit the level of insult that that host levels there. That was just unfair. But that's the thing with our words. Sometimes we can be a little unfair with what we say. Maybe in criticisms, maybe in judgments, maybe in responses, our words can easily... Be unfair. And that can reap damage and cause a lot of hurt and pain in our relationships, particularly in the context of marriage. We're starting a brand new series this week. It's called Fighting Fair. And in this series, we're talking about how we fight as married couples. If you're married, you're gonna fight. It just happens, it's normal, it's unavoidable. If you honestly expect two people to live under the same roof all the time and always get along, you're insane. It's not gonna happen. We fight, but there are healthy ways to fight and there are unhealthy ways to fight. There are ways that are fair, that honor our spouse and that honor God and our faith. And then there are ways that are unfair, that do untold damage to these people that we care and love so much. So we're gonna be learning how to fight fair in our relationships. Now, cards on the table, the principles that we're going to be talking about in this series, they're not strictly biblical, or not strict, they're biblical, don't worry. They're not strictly marriage principles, all right? Rather, they are biblical principles about human behavior and relationships. So if you're not married, there's still a ton to get out of this series. If you have a friendship, if you have family members, if you have coworkers, if you have people in your life that you are in constant contact with, there's going to be a lot of benefit here. But as far as the application goes and how we talk about these things, we're gonna be looking at it through the context of marriage and in that lens. And today we're talking about our words, how to fight with fair words. As we saw, the game show host demonstrates perfectly what some unfair words can be. And while our words may not be quite as long or lengthy or comedic, they can be just as unfair at times. So how do we fight with fair words? To help us understand that, we're gonna be looking at a passage in the book of James in the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open those up to the book of James? James. You can follow along there, James chapter three. If you don't have your Bibles with you, don't sweat it. We always put the passages on the screens to the side for you to follow along with, or, and this would be pretty beneficial for you, especially in light of what we're gonna say at the end of the service, I would encourage you to download the FCC Mammoth app on your mobile device. Click the Sunday button on your navigation bar and you'll find sermon notes with all of our passages we're gonna look at this morning pulled up, ready for you to use, to take into your heart, your mind, and start meditating on right now. So with all that said, Unfair words. How do we fight fair with our words? I'm just gonna come right out with the main idea right out of the gate. I usually try to save this towards the end of the sermon because that builds suspense and that keeps your interest peaked and you track with me a little bit better. But we have so much material to get through this morning. I don't have time to stand up here and be cute. So here's the main idea. Are you ready? You laugh, but it's true, I'm adorable. Here we go. Our words chart the course that the rest of our lives will follow. Our words chart the course that the rest of our lives will follow. We're going to unpack what that means now. Let's look at James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So that's the immediate circumstance. James is talking to a group of people in these churches that are are teaching and probably shouldn't be. They're, They're not guarding their tongues. They're saying things that ought not be said. Maybe that's false teaching. Maybe that's gossip. We don't know specifically. They're just not watching their words. Here's the more universally applicable principle in verse two. It says, we all stumble in many ways, Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So there's two universally applicable principles in verse two there. The first is very easy to notice and to apply and to resonate with. We all stumble in many ways. Amen? We all stumble in many ways. There's none of us in here today that have this living flawlessly thing nailed down. If you're perfect... There's the door, feel free to leave because we don't deserve your presence. We're all just a bunch of people that mess up in different ways at different times. We're trying our best to figure it out. That's why we need the grace of God in our lives. Everybody stumbles in many ways at different times. And when it comes to our speech, that's especially true. I don't think there's anybody alive who has mastered their tongue perfectly. We all mess up at times. We say things we don't mean, we overstate things, we're insensitive in the way we say things. We can be unfair at times, even if we don't mean to be. We stumble. Here's the flip side of that, second side of the coin. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. What does that mean? We need to understand that the word perfect there, when he uses that word, he's not referencing moral perfection or some state of sinlessness or something as if somebody was never made a mistake and never gone down the wrong path. That's not what this word means. Rather, if we were to look at the Greek text in the New Testament, we'd find that this word has the connotations of fullness or completeness, or in this case, maturity. That's probably the best way to understand that. Anyone who's able to keep a tight rein on their tongue, who's never at fault in what they say, has reached a state of maturity. And they're able to keep their whole body in check. Taming the tongue is like the Mount Everest of challenges, both in difficulty, but also in accomplishment. If we were all mountain climbers, I'm sure we've seen documentaries and heard the stories and so on. If we were all mountain climbers, Everest would be, well, our Everest, right? That's the biggest mountain on the earth. That's the number one challenge. And if we were to try to climb that, it would be a fight every step of the way. It is the greatest challenge. But if we were to reach the summit, that would be the greatest accomplishment. And by extension, it makes sense. We'd probably be able to climb every other mountain too, right, because they're smaller. And so it is with the tongue. If we're able to manage somehow by the grace of God to get a rein on our tongues, it will be one of the hardest things we ever do. But if we're able to do that, we will have taken tremendous steps in becoming mature people, not just in our faith, but in our practice. And by extension, be able to bring the rest of our bodies into control as well. It's that great of a challenge. You see, James isn't just trying to say taming the tongue is hard. That's a given Everybody in every religion and philosophy and culture on earth has always known that. If we were to go back and read the other literature from other faiths and philosophies of this time period, we'd find numerous people writing wisdom literature about the virtues of taming the tongue. The Bible's not unique in that. Here's where it is unique though. This is what James says. If we're able to maintain control of our tongue, we'll be able to maintain control of the rest of our body as well. You might say that our words chart the course that the rest of our lives will follow. Our tongue has tremendous power. This little thing in our mouths can set the direction for the rest of our lives. And that's what James gets at as we keep reading. He gives us a couple of analogies. Verse three, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or you take ships as an example, although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. We've got two analogies here, both of them of large imposing things that are guided and directed by relatively small things. Take horses. I don't spend a lot of time around horses. And by that, I mean, I spend no time around horses. So to me, they are very large animals. They're kind of intimidating, honestly. When we lived near St. Louis, the the Anheuser-Busch Clydesdales, they're a pretty iconic symbol in that city. And they'd be at a lot of different promotional events. I saw the Clydesdales one time. They're massive like they're just huge horses, not just in their stature, but in their musculature. Like they're, they're ripped, buff, stout horses made to work. And when you stand next to them, you get this feeling that like, if you weren't so domesticated, you could very easily kill me. Like they're just, they're large. And yet that whole beast with all of its power and all of its strength and its size is directed and set down a course by something so small in their mouth, a bit. Or you take a ship we, uh, my wife and I, we went on a cruise one time. Uh, we, there was this picture of the cruise ship, the kind of the breakdown of the, the engineering somewhat of what it looked like. And, and these are floating cities, like they're huge. There's thousands of people, tens of thousands of pounds of food, hundreds of thousands of pounds of steel and plastic and glass. And yet all of that is directed and guided by a rudder that is relatively small compared to the rest of the ship. Something so small has so much power to chart the course that these powerful, immense, imposing things follow and go down. And so it is with our tongue. Look at what James says in verse five. It says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. Listen to this. Sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. The tongue has tremendous power. Our words have immense influence over our lives and the direction that they go. James says it himself. They have the power to set the whole course of our lives on fire and burn it to the ground. Our words can destroy us. We've seen that at play in our culture all the time, especially in today's day and age with with social media and electronic communication. It's so easy. There's almost a daily occurrence of this. It's one ill-spoken word or one tweet that's a little insensitive or one Facebook comment that's sent out in a a moment of lapsed judgment and your whole career can be gone. Your social standing can be erased. Your friends and family can wanna abandon you. You can become a pariah because of your words. Great example of this, a young girl, her name was Connor Riley. Uh, She was a UC Berkeley graduate, very young, in her 20s. She was really excited because Cisco, the, the IT company, they offered her a job. And out of college, that's a phenomenal opportunity. And in her excitement, this is what she tweeted. She said, Cisco just offered me a job and now I have to weigh the utility of a fatty paycheck against the daily commute to San Jose and hating the work. Somebody from Cisco saw this tweet And they responded, who's the hiring manager? I'm sure they would love to know that you'll hate the work. Needless to say, that job offer evaporated. Her chances at that company went up in flames and and honestly, probably her future at most tech companies went up in flames because of one tweet. Now this wasn't even something said in offense. This isn't a vulgar thing. This is simply something that was said with the immaturity of a 20-something and the lapse of judgment and undisciplined speech that comes from an untamed tongue. But it destroyed her future. Our tongue has tremendous power to chart the course that the rest of our lives will follow. And it's not just true of the outer world. It's true of the inner world, so to speak, as well. Our self-perceptions, our self-understandings, largely are determined by the words that we say to ourselves and believe. We create our own mental roadblocks, our own stigmas, our own hurdles by what we say to and about ourselves. Great example of this, if you meet somebody that continually says to themselves, I'm a failure, you know what? They're probably gonna fail nine times out of 10. Not because they lack skill or ability, but because that's the course that their words have charted for them. Henry Ford, the the great industrialist, he recognized the power of words too well. He's quoted as saying, whether you think you can, or you can't, you're right. There's power in what we say. Our words chart the course that the rest of our lives will follow. So, is that true in the context of marriage as well? That's what we're talking about, right? Do our words have that same power? Can they chart the course that our relationship with our spouse will follow? Do they have the power to bless? Do they have the power to burn that relationship to the ground and set the whole course of our our marriage on fire? You better believe they do. Words are immensely powerful. And that's why it's so significant that we learn to tame the tongue and we learn to fight fair with what we say using fair words that don't hit below the belt. Because this relationship you have with your spouse is too precious to light up. So how, how, what are we talking about here? What are some examples of unfair speech that, that show up a lot in our relationships? This is, a, this is not an exhaustive list we're gonna cover this morning, obviously. This is just a list of common examples. Examples I've seen in my own life, examples I've seen in couples that I've worked with, couples that I've just observed. Just side note, I don't mean to be creepy, but I watch you guys all the time, all right? That's my job, to notice what's going on in your lives so I know what to talk about. These are just some things I've observed, okay? And by the way, um, this is not so you can listen to these things and nudge your spouse and go, that's you, you need to work on that. This is so we all can take a hard look in the mirror and learn to stop hitting below the belt. So probably the most obvious example of unfair words, words that fight dirty, are words that intend to harm. Sometimes we're guilty of this. You know, you get in a fight, the emotions start to flow, your anger starts to rise. Maybe you get a little panicky and there's a sinful part of our hearts that just wants to hurt somebody. And maybe it's our spouse. And I'll say this, because of that marital relationship, because of that closeness, spouses know how to hurt each other with military precision. Sometimes this looks like screaming at each other, just you know, yelling cuss words at each other. Maybe you're calling each other names. You know, that kind of stuff is pretty obvious. One that's a little less obvious, but also is is very common is words that prey on our partner's insecurities. Because as spouses, we know each other very well. We know what our partners are insecure about, what they struggle about, and there's a temptation to lash out and hit those. Well, if you would just lose some weight. Now guys, we can have body image issues as well sometimes, but but largely we got to think of our wives here. They are raised in a society It tells them from birth, they're not good enough. It teaches them to prey on their own physical insecurities. That's what they grow up in. It's our job to set them free from that. It's our job to build them up. It's our job to establish in them a pride in who they are and what they look like and how God created them. That's our job, guys. But when we say, well, if you just lose some weight, oh man, that is gonna hurt way more than you realize Well, if you could hold down a job. Ladies, you can call your man every name in the book. And most of the time, he's not gonna lose a lot of sleep over it. But if you really wanna crush him, just insult his ability to provide and to feel like a man, that'll do it. That'll cut him deep. Well, you're just like your mom or you're just like your dad. Dad. You know, we love these people, they're important to us, but oftentimes we don't want to be those people because we know them well, we know their failures and faults. And, and if you really want to insult somebody and make them feel, you know, compromised, just make them feel like they're turning into the person they don't want to be. That's an insult to them and to your in-laws. That's a double whammy. If I had married so and so, I wouldn't even have this problem right now. If your marriage is already in a in a compromised state, where there's some insecurity, drawing attention to the fact that you're thinking about other people and what could have been is a surefire way to just quickly erode and destroy whatever foundation you have. All of these things are hidden below the belt. None of them are designed to solve a problem. None of them are designed to move the conversation forward. They're designed for one purpose only, to draw blood. And as spouses, we know exactly how to do it. Which is why it's doubly important we learn to tame this beast. Because if that's how we fight, we're soaking our marriage in gasoline. And it's not a question of if, but when the match goes off. It's dangerous. That's one example words intended to harm. Here's another one. This is related, but a little different. Words intended to win. This is a fight, right? We're fighting. There's gonna be a winner, there's gonna be a loser. That's what we tell ourselves. And we, we wanna win. We don't wanna lose. And, and ladies, sometimes you can fall into this category, but guys, let's, let's face it, most of the time it's us. There's this really competitive part of us that just doesn't want to lose. We don't wanna be second best. I don't know why that is, but it is. And sometimes we can get so caught up in trying to win the fight that we lose sight of what we're losing. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So my wife and I, we had this argument a couple months ago and this is kind of a side story. Anytime I do a series on marriage, she says, are there any illustrations I need to be aware of? Um, like her, her whole life is just you know on display and she knows it. And I said, well, there's, there's this one, I'm gonna talk about an argument we had. She goes, I don't even remember that. So then I described it and she goes, oh yeah, I remember that now. Um, just side note, funny story. So we were having this argument a few months ago. I don't remember what it was about because that wasn't really the part that stuck with me. But I remember we were arguing and she explained her opinion and her perspective. And then I just calmly explained why she was wrong. Um, that's just how we fight a lot of times. And we were arguing about a factual thing, like two plus two is four. We were arguing about an opinion-based thing. And I just said, well, your opinion is flawed. Here's why in the story. And she said, okay. Which if you're not well-versed in woman speak, means things are not okay. <laughs> right? So I pushed and I said, well, now what's wrong? Ladies, what'd she say? How'd you know? It's like you're on the same wavelength, which again, if if you don't know, that means there's definitely something wrong. So I said, no, really, what's wrong? Here's what I do remember from this fight. She said, it doesn't matter. You're just gonna tell me I'm wrong, so what's the point? That I remember, because it hurt, mainly because it was true. Sometimes when we get so caught up in trying to win a fight, We lose sight of what we're losing, which is value for our spouse, for their opinion, for their uniqueness. It's easy to get caught up in trying to win because we want to win, right? Who wants to lose? I'm gonna tell you something. In marriage, winning is inconsequential. It doesn't matter. You can rack up a thousand victories, but that's not gonna keep you warm at night. And you can put... W after W up on the wall. You can have like conference championship banners of all the fights that you've won, but they're gonna make really terrible conversation partners over dinner. Winning doesn't matter when it comes to fighting in marriage. In fact, winning is kind of the opposite attitude of what God calls us to for marriage. In the book of Ephesians chapter five, he describes for us what a a God-honoring marriage looks like. And it's a beautiful thing. Ephesians chapter five, starts in verse 21. It says, Uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the heading, submit to one another, this mutual coming underneath one another. then he breaks it down, what that looks like. He says, wives submit to your husbands, that's to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, which he gave his body as savior. Then he says to husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, washing her with water through cleansing in the word and so on, there's a lot more that he says there, but that's the gist of it. It's this beautiful relationship, all right, of wives, submit to your husbands out of respect because God has called you to this position. And husbands, earn that submission by giving yourself away and sacrificing in love, just like Jesus. And wives respond to that sacrificial love by following his leadership and submission. And husbands, you earn that love and that respect by uh, by, by sacrificing of yourself, loving her fully and giving yourself away. It's this beautiful downward motion where we're trying to elevate the other person That's what a biblical marriage looks like and it's beautiful. But when we're trying to win, it's not really so much a downward motion as an upward motion. I'm trying to be on top. I'm trying to satisfy my ego. I'm trying to be number one. I'm trying to, to feel good about myself. This is the opposite direction of what God calls us to in marriage and it will produce the opposite of what God hopes for in marriage. Peace, love, value. Instead, we will find strife and pain and conflict. Words designed to win are not fair. Here's one more. This is really becoming my favorite one to talk about recently. I call it alternate reality language. These are words that we use and things that we say that don't really correspond with the facts of how things are. Good example of this is superlative language. You always leave your boots dirty before you come in the house. I'm always picking up after you. Now, is that true? There has never been an instance in which your partner has made the effort to do as you ask and clean their boots. They always have this disregard and 100% of the time they're walking with muddy boots and 100% of the time you're left cleaning it up. Is that really how things are? Probably not. There probably has been at least a time or two where they tried to honor what you asked and do what you asked of them. Now, maybe it's a common occurrence. That's fair. Maybe that's a conversation that needs to be had. But to say that this is always the case is not true to the facts. Here's another one. You're never in the mood. Now, is it true your partner is never in the mood to be intimate? You've been married 20 years. You got three kids between the two of you, but you've never consummated your marriage. Explain to me how that works, right? That's not accurate. Now, maybe your partner is less enthusiastic than you are. Okay, that's fair. There's a conversation. But to say that you are never in the mood, that's not fair to the facts. It's not true. This alternate reality language is one example. Here's another one. It's language that paints us out to be a victim and our spouse or our partner to be the aggressor where we've done nothing wrong, right? It's not our fault, we didn't do anything. It's all them and their problems and their issues and their behaviors. Here's reality. If there's two people in a fight, it's because two people probably deserve to be there. Now there are exceptions, but they're few and far between. We all have guilt to bear and responsibility for our actions. It's not reality to say that I'm always a victim, completely innocent of everything, and that they're always the aggressor, completely at fault for everything. So here's why this matters, okay? Our words have power. And if we are speaking these alternate realities enough, over enough time, we're gonna actually believe them. And we're gonna genuinely believe that this is how things are. And when it comes to dirty boots, that may not seem like a big deal, but what if the thing we come to believe is, you are always angry. You never have time for me. You never support me. You're always coming at me, you're always doing this, you're always causing problems. That's a very different story. What do you think your marriage is gonna be like if that's the reality you choose to believe? If that's what you honestly think of your spouse and of your marriage, the whole thing's gonna go up in flames. You see, alternate reality language is not a small thing. It can lead us to believe some very untrue and unfair things about our spouse. See, when James talks about a disciplined tongue, he's not just talking about dirty words and lying. He's talking about all of our words. We speak millions and millions of words over the course of our life. Every single one of them has the opportunity to be a blessing or to be a curse. And we need to realize the power that our words have. It's like leaving the loaded gun on the coffee table if we don't bridle this thing. There's so much tremendous potential in our speech. Our words have the power to chart the course that the rest of our lives will follow. So how do we tame the tongue? How do we do this? Let's look at what James has to say. James chapter three, I'm gonna skip down a little bit and look at verse nine. He says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and father. And with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's image. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Again, another analogy. It is hard to tame the tongue. And we all know that. It's difficult to get a wrangle on this thing and keep it under control. But it is not impossible In fact, what James is saying here is it is unnatural for somebody who professes faith in the living God to then turn around and with an unbridled tongue cause damage to people that are made in that God's likeness. Especially when that other person is your own flesh, your marriage partner, your spouse. We're hurting ourselves when we fight with unfair words. It's unnatural like salt water coming from a freshwater spring, like olives growing on a fig tree. It may be hard, it may be something we wrestle with for the rest of our days because we all stumble in many ways after all, remember? But it is something that we are called to pursue, this controlled, tame tongue. We are called to fight fair. So how do we do that? Well, here's step one. It's the same step as every other sin in our lives. We repent. And repent is a very simple but profound concept. It means that we first, we acknowledge we have sin in our lives. I have messed up. We identify how we are fighting with unfair words. We identify the ways that we are hurting our spouse when we argue or when we fight. Step two, we accept the grace of God in our lives. It comes through Jesus. We don't have to waller in that sin and in that shame because we've messed up, all right? He paved the way for forgiveness and grace. We are set free from that. But sometimes that's where we stop, when there's actually a step three to repentance. All right, we're forgiven, great. Now change. Turn away from that sin. Commit to the Lord to have a disciplined tongue. So confess, receive grace, commit to God. I'm going to do better. We are going to change. And that leads us to step two. Use the power of words for good. We've been talking all morning about how powerful our words are. We said, you know, they have the power to set the whole course of one's life on fire, James says. They have destructive potential, but that sword cuts both ways. That same power can be good. That same power can lead to blessing in our lives. That can cultivate a richness in our marriages and in our days if we know how to use it. Use that power for good. So here is my recommendation for how to do that. This is not a word from the Lord that you're gonna find in the Bible anywhere. I do think it has biblical roots from several passages we're gonna hit on, but this is just my personal recommendation to you. Here's an easy thing we can do. Every single day, make it a point to speak something loving respectful, and affirming about and to your spouse. Every single day, make it a point to speak something loving, affirming, and respectful to and about your spouse. Try to be detailed. I love you or you look nice. While good is not gonna have the transformative power that we're looking for. All right, here's some examples. I really appreciate how hard you work to keep the house clean for our family. It means a lot to me. I really admire the determination and the discipline it takes to stick with this new endeavor that you started in your life. I think that you are a beautiful person on the inside with your joy and with your enthusiasm, as well as on the outside, because dang girl, you look good, right? It can be fun. Something loving, affirming, respectful, that's gonna build our spouse up. And there's two benefits to this, okay? The first, very practical, it puts money in the love bank. I talked about the concept of the love bank before. We don't have time to to flesh it out again right now, but here's the gist of it. Your relationship, your marriage is like a bank account. You make deposits, you make withdrawals. When we mess up, when we stumble in many ways, we're making a withdrawal. If you make withdrawals without having funds in the account, there's a penalty. You have enough penalties, that account closes, right? You tracking with me? So how do we avoid that? We make continual deposits. Every single day, we're saying something loving, respectful, and affirming to and about our spouse. Every day, we're putting money in the bank because it's inevitable. We're gonna mess up. We all stumble in many ways. Nobody has perfect control of their tongue. We're gonna say something dumb. We're gonna say the wrong thing. We're gonna say the wrong tone of voice. We're gonna use the wrong words. We're gonna have a weak moment. It's going to happen. So put money in the bank so that there's cushion there to absorb that blow. That's the practical benefit. Here's the second benefit and really the more significant one. We are charting a new course for our hearts and our marriages to follow. That's the power of words, right? They chart the course so the rest of our life will follow. When we speak loving, affirming, supportive things to and about our spouse every day, we are training our hearts and minds to think and feel differently. Jesus says something profound in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. He says, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. I prefer a slightly older translation. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That means that when we're in marriage, when we get into those fights and the emotions get out of control and we start saying unfair things, we start cussing at each other and yelling at each other, insulting each other and punching below the belt. We start using that always superlative language and creating this other reality. When all that starts to happen, that means it's actually coming from in here. It's all the junk that's already stored up here that's popping up out of our mouth. It's not just a tongue problem, it's a heart problem. It's the predisposed disposition of our hearts. Now, we may not like the way that sounds because we like to think we're really good people, but the reality is sometimes there are parts of us that aren't. That's why we need the grace of God. We can argue, but really, this is Jesus, the one who sees into our hearts and knows us more intimately than we even know ourselves. He's the one telling us this. I think we can trust it. We have a heart issue enter the power of words. Every single day, speaking something loving, respectful, and affirming, we are training our hearts to think and to feel differently about our spouse. If you think all this is mumbo-jumbo, let me lay some science on you. There's this book, it's called Words Change Your Brain. It's written by two neurologists, Andrew Newberg and Mark Waldman. Waldman. They started to look at brain scans of two different groups of people. One group was subjected to continual negative language, One group was subjected to continual positive language. And what they noticed when they compared these two brain scans before and after was that there were actual physiological, neurological changes in the brain. Words change your brain. Specifically, when they looked at the the category of those who were subjected to positive language, here's what they said. They said developments in the parietal lobe began to change the way that it functioned. Meaning people began to think better about themselves and others around them. In other words, continual subjection to positive language made people feel better about themselves and others around them, i.e. their spouse. Words have incredible power in our lives. That's the way God made us. If we use that power for good, if we are shaping our hearts and minds to think in positive ways, loving ways about our spouse, if that becomes the default disposition of our heart, then when those times come where we do get into a fight and we open our mouths, and there is that temptation to speak unfair and to fight with unfair words, it's going to seem so unnatural. It's going to feel Uncomfortable because that's not how our heart truly feels about this person. It's gonna feel as gross as salt water coming from a freshwater spring, if you will. That's the power of words. Now, it's not to say we won't stumble, but it's just a helpful tip that can help move us in a positive direction. There's so much more that we can, should, and ought to say about this this morning, but this is already a long sermon. I've already cut a whole section out of it called Garbage In, Garbage Out, about what we fill our hearts with. So instead of getting into all of that and using even more time that we don't have this morning, I'm gonna say this. In a couple of minutes, we're gonna put some tools in your hands. These are tools that are designed to help us improve our marriages. They're tools that are designed to help our hearts, whether we're married or not, to fill them with positive, true things, to feel and think about other people. These are tools that are designed to help us and our families take our next step closer to Christ. Here's what I want from us this morning. We're gonna give these tools to you for free. Use them. Don't just say, oh, that's nice. I don't care if it's nice. Use them. That's what I care about. Because that's how the Holy Spirit is gonna start to change us and change our marriages. Where we stop using our words to fight in our marriages and we start fighting for our marriages. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. You spoke and you gave us life. You spoke and we were set free. You spoke and Father, all things came into being. There's tremendous power in your words, and you have set a similar power in our words. So, Father, I pray that we take pains to discipline them, to use them in ways that are honoring and true of you, that we might experience the benefit in our lives, in our spirits, and in our marriages. Father, we thank you that there is grace. We all stumble in many ways, it's inevitable. But Father, we thank you that your grace is unstoppable. You've saved us in the blood of Jesus. And in his name, Father, I pray that you set our hearts free from whatever bonds, whatever baggage, whatever darkness resides there. And with cooperative partnership with us, as we seek you, you would fill us and change us. And as you demonstrate your glory in a changed life and in a changed relationship. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.